K C A A. Hi, I'm Scott Knutson, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, heard here on KCAA every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific. Listen to me as I talk to some of the top business and horse people from around the world. That's the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show right here on KCAA, the station that leaves no listener behind. KCAA Loma Linda. Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10:50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California, and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, a good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening to everybody around the world. Welcome to the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with our great host, Mr. Chris Davy. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, man. We're trying to we're trying to handle the winds here. We had uh, pretty good winds last night. A uh, little lull uh, today and tomorrow, but Friday night into Saturday, it's supposed to be a tie your mother down event, right? I mean, yeah, lash everything to the to the map. Oh uh, well, for our listeners, Chris is up in California. I'm in Arizona at the moment, and uh, we're glad you everybody got to join us today. And uh, we got a good, great, great, great show. Anything else exciting in uh, in in the Southern California area? Other other than the fact that I'm on the radio with you and uh, and Chris from Maven's Notebook. Well, then we should introduce her. Yeah. So I'd like to introduce the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. Hey, everybody. How you doing? How you doing? You're up in Central California today. No, I I am in Northern California. Northern. And uh, Chris. Other Chris is in Southern California, which is actually a big difference. Uh, yeah, I remember those winds. Up here in Northern California, we're having beautifully mild days. The temperature got up to about 70, and the sun was shining. And if you're out in the sun, it's just glorious. It, it's been very nice. But the problem is that I live in between the two largest reservoirs in the state that supply most of the water. So while the weather is just glorious, uh, you know, having uh, some rainstorms come through to help fill up these reservoirs is still very much needed. Um, My parents live in Reno, and I had the opportunity to drive up there last weekend because the weather is so nice. And as I drove across the Sierras, uh, yeah, there's a lot of snow up there, but uh, on the peaks, you're starting to see a lot of brown. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not too early to do the dance on the drought, because if we don't get any more storms, uh, it's going to be a problem. And the forecast for the next six to 10 days is not really saying that there's going to be much coming through. So, you know, we're just going to have to cross our fingers. Yeah, we're we're not seeing anything up this way in Arizona. It's been 75 degrees today, beautiful day, no winds. 
or if there is a wind, it's maybe two, three miles an hour, but it's, it's gorgeous. Beautiful day, but there's no sign of rain in the, in the coming days. So we got to say, I guess we follow you. Yeah, and, you know, there's there's actually, in terms of numbers, the snowpack in the Sierra is pretty good. But if it stays dry and the sky stays sunny, um, it's, it's not going to stay that way. But interestingly, today, the state increased the uh, allocation from, for the state water project from what I believe was zero to uh, 15%. But there are critics out there that are saying, you know, it's too soon to be, you know, predicting anything because, uh, well, you know, as the old saying goes, it ain't over until the fat lady sings and she hasn't even entered the building yet. So. <laughs> Everybody's everybody's waiting for that because we're we're all there. Everybody up in your area is holding their breath on what's going to happen with water and water rates and everything else. So that's going to be in, interesting. Even though we'll, we'll, we can talk later, I had some questions that we can go over later about uh, new funding opportunities from the Department of Interior relating to water and some other things. But so, what what are some of the critics doing? Are they are they? I mean, obviously, they're probably upset about the fifteen percent increase. But uh, what is, what is the uh, state water board? have to say about that well, why, why, uh, why did they do this right now well the state water board really isn't involved in this it's the department of water resources and i i'm going to think that they're optimistic that they're going to be able to provide at least a little bit of water to people uh keep in mind 15 percent it's not much i mean if i say you know next your next paycheck you will get 15 percent of your paycheck you're going to be hurting, right? I mean, when we hear these numbers sometimes, I think we need to take it into the context of if someone was saying it to us. I mean, you can say, hey, 60, 75% of the snowpack isn't, you know, that's that's pretty good. But if it were your paycheck and I said, hey, 75%, there's a lot of people that would be like, you know, ouch, that hurts. Right, um, and that's kind of the way, that's kind of the way it works. Um, but you know, we just need a few more storms to come through, and you know, hopefully, we can make it happen. It you know, it doesn't it if it, it's, uh, it's just a handful more we need to come through between now and April. So we'll cross our fingers. Hey, did you hear about how uh, after the big Storms in December it knocked out power to a lot of people living in the in the mountains in the foothills. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when when I drove up to my parents' house, you know, the, the, one of the factors in the loss of power to so many people is that it not only you know dropped power lines and and the poles themselves snapped, but a lot of trees that were weakened and were dead and were going to, you know, collapse anyways, collapsed under the weight of the precipitation. You know, what's really interesting, uh, we learned this on our own property because we had a dead tree and it fell down. And you think it would be heavy, but it's not because it's dead on the inside. It's light. So 
all these trees came down and they took down power poles. Some of them went into houses. It was really quite a mess. And as I drove up to Reno across uh, State Route 20 from Nevada City to the Sierras, you could see where there were a lot of trees that had been broken off and other trees that they took down and periodically stacks of, of logs there. Um, the power now is back on for most of those people, but, uh, and the amazing thing is I did not hear that anybody died, uh, you know, being without power in snow and freezing temperatures for two to three weeks. Um, you know, I didn't hear anybody died, so that's good news. Oh, absolutely. Hey, did you hear about the tsunami? Speaking yeah. of things, <laughs> sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm surprising you with that, but uh, well, tell our audience about that. Yeah, uh, there was an underwater volcano that erupted near Tonga, uh, which is you know way off in the ocean somewhere that triggers tsunami warnings for the west coast of California and in other areas, but you know, my purview is just California. And, you know, one of the perhaps not wise things is that uh, a lot of people went, ooh, tsunami warming, uh, and they went out to the beach. <laughs> now, in this case, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a tragic thing, but actually about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago in Crescent City, a lot of people went, ooh, tsunami warning, and they went out to the beach, and it was actually a huge wave, and, and they all died. So, you know, it's not a wise thing to run towards the tsunami warning. But isn't it, what, isn't, isn't it true that the water starts to recede first, and then, then the big wave comes? Yeah, that's, you know, that's what happens. And in this case, uh, it you know the there were larger waves and they did cause some damage but it but it wasn't tragic but uh, I believe the tsunami that happened I don't know 20 30 years I I don't have the date came from an earthquake in uh, Alaska and it triggered tsunami that hit. Uh, Crescent City, which is at the northern part of the California border, and it actually, you know, uh, caused some deaths. It was pretty big, uh, and it caused a lot of damage. And this one actually caused a little bit of damage. It seemed like Santa Cruz took a hit, uh, but I didn't hear anything uh, other than Santa Cruz uh, really sustaining any damage from it. But uh, but, you know, folks, uh, if you hear there's a tsunami warning, it's really not a good idea to go towards it. <laughs> That's true. You know, I, I, I don't usually believe anything on the Internet, and I don't believe the story that I, I saw the other day about it. But they, they thought it was some country <laughs> testing nuclear weapons that caused the, the earthquake. And, and uh, that, that's what they were doing. But. There's no proof of that, but that was a rumor flying around about it. Yeah, well, these days anything can go up on the internet, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's correct, a lot of times it's not. 
conspiracy. If you look at <clears throat> if you look at the um, again the internet, I know you don't trust it, Rob, but you know they've actually got aerial pictures, satellite pictures of that volcano uh, erupting. And right. NOAA, right. N-O- NOAA has this great timeline, awesome sped up uh, you know timeline of of the actual uh, wet the actual energy wave uh, from that. And as it spreads out across the Pacific and over towards the West Coast, and you can zoom in and see what which were affected. I saw the videos, Chris uh, Austin, up in uh, Santa Cruz, and so there was a little damage in Southern California. Not much at all. There were some time lapse videos down here of like Huntington Harbor and Newport Beach, but you know there was a, a rise in the sea level, some six to nine inches, but nothing more than that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seemed like it was pretty much a non-event, but you know, for the folks rushing to the beaches, it, you never know when it's going to be a non-event. And if, no. the, if it's an event, you you don't want to be there. No, you're right, and and you know my my point with the internet things, you know, they block off a lot of stuff that they themselves classify or create algorithms to say that something is false. But yet, right. then these other stories go, and that's that's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, yeah. it's hard hard to believe this stuff sometimes when you read it. Just like you said, Noah did the time lapse uh, imaging, and you could see that, and, and and nobody else claimed it. But but again, the story gets on, and and uh, they leave it on. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Could have been aliens. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so Chris, tell us about tell us about so here a little kerfuffle, if you will. California oh, yeah. water news that was as it relates to Arrowhead uh, drinking water. <laughs> What's the story there? Oh boy, this this one has been a long one. Uh, it's it's actually kind of amazing. You know, for people who drink bottled water, um, you know this that comes from these mountain springs. You should understand that. Uh, a lot of times it's highly, highly controversial how they're getting this water. Um, and as it turns out, uh, Arrowhead Water had been getting their uh, water from a pipeline in the San Bernardino Mountains uh, that they'd had for uh, some time. And uh, they this water flowed down and people kind of caught on to it, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago that this was going on, and they started questioning their rights, and as it turns out, like, their water rights expired, you know, quite a long time ago, and nobody's really enforcing the rules here, um, and and so, you know, there's a hearing going on now at the state water board uh, that is sort of delving into all of this. And it even boils down to, you know, the thing about water rights in California is you have to prove up how much water you're taking and putting to beneficial use. And this is because these water rights go far, far back, uh, it even involves how much water you can put in a train, in a train car in 1909 or, you know, the early 1900s. Um, but yeah, there's quite, there's quite a, a bit of a, you know, 
thing here going on with the state water board looking into these water rights. You know, it only shows that, uh, you know, that they're they're only allowed to take a certain amount, but they have appeared to be taking a lot more. But nobody really knows because nobody has been uh, keeping tabs on this kind of thing. And the larger story to the rest of the West is that, you know, this is not an isolated incident. There are probably a lot of other places, you know, it throughout the West where people are taking water for bottled water that maybe isn't too popular with the people that live there. You know, crystal geyser crystal geyser water comes from the Eastern Sierra. And if you drive up the 395 uh, through Olancha, you'll see the bottling plant there. And the real ironic thing is that Crystal Geyser is using the same water that people in LA get through you know, the Department of Water and Power because it's very close to the same sources they are using. But they're paying so, so much more. So, you know, it's kind of ironic. If you drink, if you drink Crystal Geyser water in Los Angeles, <laughs> you could get pretty much the same water coming out of your tap for a lot less. What, 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 I'm, what I'm surprised about is people who have new homes and they get a you know water treatment uh, system for their home. Okay, then they have refrigerators, the modern refrigerators that has water filters in them as well. So they can maybe have in their home a, a reverse osmosis system and all of that. Then they have the refrigerator that takes a filter, which are not cheap. They're any range from anywhere from forty dollars up to eighty dollars for these filters. That's but yet expensive. most of those people still go out and buy bottled water. Right. So how much better is the bottled water than what they're already paying for in their, in their homes? It's probably a lot worse. I mean, they're not subject to the same testing that your public water system does. And, you know, I mean, yeah, i got to say, I like the taste of bottled water better than the water that come, came out of my tap many years ago. So we went and we got a reverse osmosis system put in and we paid $150 for it um, and from then on that's what we used for for our water we didn't buy bottled water and when my kids were in soccer and baseball and whatever they learned to fill up their water bottles yeah. right the refillable ones uh, I, I know people that just tossed a, a you know, a crate of wa- a bottle of water in the back of their trucks, and that's what they, you know, gave their kids to drink. But I taught mine, you know, if you're going out the door, here's a bottle of water, fill it up. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know. I got a, bi- I got a big 36-ounce 30, Yeti that I fill up with ice and the water from the fridge. Or, or I have the reverse osmosis by my sink, kitchen sink. So either place, I fill it up with that all the time. I don't carry the plastic bottles with me. No, uh, I don't. You know, and, and there is a place in the world for bottled water. Uh, sometimes you don't have any other choice. And if you're, you, you're thirsty and you want something to drink, 
you know, it's great to be able to pull a, a, a bottle of water out of the refrigerator at the 7-Eleven. I mean, yep. it, it wouldn't, it would suck if you could only choose, you know, sugary drinks or, or whatever. Uh, it has its place, but it shouldn't have its place in, this is my opinion, um, in our day-to-day lives. <laughs> I, I have... Huh? I see. I see a lot of people filling the refillable bottles, you know, the special bottles at the airport. They even have special places that you can go and fill them up. And I think that's a great idea. I think it's an absolutely great idea. It certainly will cut down on on all the uh, pollution with the plastic bottles that they can't get rid of. Yeah, we still haven't found a, a good use for plastic bottles. And I think probably the most sobering statistic I ever heard was that um, pretty much. Every piece of plastic that has ever been made, and they started making plastic in what the 1950s, mm. uh, still exists on this planet somewhere today. Uh-huh. So whatever we can do to reduce our use of plastic, especially single-use plastic, um, it's it's uh, it, it's just what I think everyone should be doing. And I have what I call a water tank, which is like a Yeti cup, the Yeti cup. And I put my my ice in there and fill it up with water. And that ice lasts all day. Oh, absolutely. Even overnight, yes. Yeah. And so, like, there's nothing. And and I take it in my car and leave it in my car. And it's hot outside. And I get into my car and I can pick up my my Yeti cup. and, And it's ice cold (laughs) i'm going to tell you what's better than bottled water is you know get yourself a what i call a water tank yeah right you know carry that around oh absolutely absolutely i do i do know that they use plastic from bottles that uh, i saw an article maybe a year ago that they make clothes out of it yeah, and they, people they use were, it for carpet as well. Yeah, people are trying to find uses for recycled for recycled plastic, and we this is this is the big problem. We need to have uses for these plastic bottles that we're we're putting in our recycle bins, and so far there hasn't been a lot of them. But you know, like with aluminum and cans. Those are easily recyclable, and they figured out how to have a market and make that happen. We need to have that happen with uh, plastic bottles. With plastic bottles, yeah, you're right. You know, we need to stop looking at. I mean, there are certain things that are waste streams that shouldn't be waste streams, and to bring it all back to water, you know, with desalination, uh, you get. Uh, you put water through a desalination plant, you get brine and you get water. And, you know, we used to look at uh, wastewater treatment plants as waste, right? But now we figured out a way to use that. So I think the question going forward with desalination is how can we reuse that brine in a way that is beneficial? Versus what they do now, which is dumping it back into the ocean, which, you know, causes right. problems. So, you know, we need to stop looking at our waste streams as waste and see how we can make them a resource. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what new technologies do. Hey, I see that the interior department is offering a bunch of funding opportunities for water agencies and such. And I think that's that's a good thing. Is that part of the uh, the, the bill that was passed in the Congress or that's just what they're? Yeah, the infrastructure bill. Yeah, they're working to get that that money out the door. They they earlier uh, released a uh, request for uh, upgrading infrastructure. So if you had old things you needed to have upgraded, they already issued a, you know, a whatever they call it, an RSP or whatever for that. And they're working to move, you know, water out the door. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they're working to move money out the door. Uh, so there's funding, especially for recycled water projects, but also uh, desalination, uh, because desalination in some places makes sense. I don't think it makes sense as a widespread water uh, strategy, but there are places uh, where I do think it makes sense. And, you know, if you can build community support for that, then there you go. Um, so they're moving money out the door for for upgrading infrastructure, for uh, water recycling projects, for desalination, and there's a lot more coming down the pipe. They're just starting to get ready to release this money. I think, like you said before, if uh, technology catches up, like with the brine and things like that, it could be it could turn that around quite a bit and uh, help because they they use both desalination by the ocean, but they also have inland uh, inland desalination. And, and like you said, I, I think if some people come up with some technology to what can you do with the brine and, and, and get rid of some of these things and use them for making making it useful for some other other type things, that would be uh, that would be awesome. So I hope hope nobody stops thinking of uh, new ideas to do 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 these things. Hey, this is California. We got a lot of brain power here. Yes, you do. Yes, there you do. There are people working on it. Well, Chris, we're coming up to our commercial break. We do appreciate everything that you uh, bring to the table here with us and with the airways. I just want to remind our listeners, please go to www.mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber. Uh, you can also uh, contribute to it. And uh, it's a great way to get your California water news every single day when your computer turns on. And it's something uh, that Chris and I use a lot. And it's it's a great Great, great thing to, to get. Uh, we use it a lot. So uh, give, give them a check out on, on that website. And Chris, thank you very much. And we will talk to you next week. All right. Good evening, everyone. Bye, Good evening. All right. We're going to take we're gonna take a short break, and we'll be back in a minute with our uh, second guest. So stick around, and we'll be right back. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yucaipa. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers and 
you get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project, so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock. Because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that, introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied, fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied, fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the Technical Service Hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. K-C-A-A. Freshwater. The Great Lakes are the largest freshwater ecosystem in the world, containing over 20% of Earth's surface freshwater. This makes the Great Lakes an incredibly unique and critical place for water research, including in the areas of invasive species, microplastics, emerging contaminants, and climate change. The opportunities to learn and devise solutions for water challenges is discussed in this episode with Rebecca Clapper, the Vice Dean of the School of Freshwater Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Rebecca also talks about how the university attracts students from a wide range of backgrounds who then go into a diversity of fields after graduation, highlighting the cross-disciplinary nature of water. Hi, welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Excited for this episode to talk with Rebecca Clapper. She is Vice Dean of the School of Freshwater Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Rebecca, thanks for coming on the podcast. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, like I was saying kind of before we started recording, I've you know known about that School of Freshwater Sciences for a number of years. People speak so highly of it. Uh, you all have an incredible mission and work that you do up there that we'll talk about. Uh, so I'm really, really glad to connect. Uh, and I was saying I want to have more Great Lakes kind of content on the podcast. So this is a, a good step in that direction. Yeah, um, even better. Yeah. Before we kind of dig into maybe some of the issues and, and uh, into the nuts and bolts a little bit, could you tell people what the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences is? Yeah, um, we are the first uh, graduate school of freshwater sciences located on Lake, on one of the Great Lakes in the United States. Um, and um, we are um, right now, um, we started as a graduate school, but we are um, just starting our new undergraduate program this year as well. Uh, we have uh, scientists that research everything from aquaculture, um, how to sustainably raise fish in a um, time where you know fish populations are dwindling even though they're a main food source for many people uh, to uh, water technologies for cleanup for sensing uh, to um, areas like my own research where we're looking at contaminants and how they impact not only the organisms that we find in freshwater systems and those communities and ecosystems but also how that relates to human health um, the whole idea of uh, One Health, that the environmental health is tied to, to human health. Um, and then uh, we also have uh, people studying ecosystem science, how the freshwater sciences operate, um, how things like the Great Lakes operate. And then um, we also have uh, a great uh, scientist, a couple scientists looking at bacteria and viral populations in our freshwater um, environments, including um, the latest thing being monitoring COVID in our wastewater uh, systems. Uh, what's being emitted from our wastewater systems after many of our populations are being exposed to things like COVID. Yeah. You have a lot going on then, a lot of, a yeah. lot of different angles here. Um, what's it just like being you know, a scientist like yourself, uh, being located there on the largest freshwater ecosystem in the world and, and just delving into all that science? What's that just like? Yeah. You know, Milwaukee's in a great position because we have these, we're at the confluence of three rivers, um, the Milwaukee, the Menominee, and the Kinniknik River that end up emptying out into Lake Michigan. And, uh, you know, historically, this was uh, an area where Native Americans um, uh, were really dependent on, on the water systems and have a deep connection to water and the things they were able to grow here and the fish on these lakes. So we're very... Um, cognizant of the fact that we are uh, standing on the shoulders of, of other folks that had a great appreciation for this uh, freshwater system. And uh, we are really lucky in the fact that we can just step out our door and onto our boat and into these uh, freshwater systems and, and study them on a daily basis. And uh, so it's a pretty exciting place to be. We also have a, a great facility. Um, and because we're basically right on the water, um, we can bring samples back and analyze them right away in our facility. We have a great uh, group of scientists and undergraduates and graduate students and technicians in our building that everyone can interact with um, each other and learn from each other about these very uh, diverse areas uh, of freshwater science. Um, and that also includes, uh, you know, you think of freshwater scientists being uh, just those folks that go out and, and uh, study the, you know, the birds and bunnies of the water world, uh, different fish and organisms in water systems. Um, but we also have uh, folks that study economics and um, policy and legal aspects of our freshwater resources, which is really unusual for uh, a science school. And, and it is one of our sources of pride and the fact that we have 
uh, brought in some of the social sciences to help us answer questions about how humans relate to their environment. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, so in, in short, it's really cool <laughs> being, being located yes. there. Yeah. Short answer, very awesome. Place. <laughs> yeah. Um, why is why are you know are the Great Lakes and and you know where you're located? Why is this an important place for water research to be happening? Um, you know, I'd love to really kind of get your perspective on that. Um, you know, the Great Lakes are a huge uh, freshwater resource for uh, many populations in the United States, and uh, it is um, they're like freshwater oceans uh, is the closest thing that you can describe them as. A, anyone that's from another part of the country, uh, if you come to one of the Great Lakes, I think you're surprised about their size. They're just they're ginormous uh, pieces of of water, and um, and they're just amazing in in their scope. And so we really think of them more as as oceans rather than what anyone would think of a lake being in um, you know one of the other states uh, that's not connected to the Great Lakes. Um, so they're an important source of of fresh water, uh, drinking water for not only for uh, human populations but also for industry. There are lots of industries that are located on the Great Lakes because of this great water source. Of course, uh, in Milwaukee, we're uh, a beer making town, and mm. um, also have uh, Harley and and uh, some other industries, um, Badger Meter, and another. Uh, industries that are associated with with water, either dependent on the water resource or have built up here. Um, in fact, Milwaukee is becoming uh, a freshwater science hub uh, for industry and uh, commercial enterprises, partly because of um, an organization that started here, the Water Council, uh, many years ago, about the same time our, our school started, and really um, putting forth the fact that freshwater is is very important for a lot of reasons. And, um, and so this is the place to be. We're on this huge freshwater resource where we can um, have water as a focus in our, in our discussions of not only, uh, you know, the environment and, and, and populations, but also for industry. I, I love that you describe the Great Lakes as as more like these oceans than lakes. That's a really cool way to explain it. When I've flown over the area or flown into the area, they are massive. Uh, the other thing that always surprises me is the color. Like, you know, yeah. you, you're kind of used to these muddy looking lakes and just the color of blue that they, they pop with is amazing sometimes. Um, all right. So all the science that you all are doing, what are, what's the science saying about the health of the Great Lakes, the science you all do? What are some of like the big, you know, takeaways right now? Yeah, actually, the example that you gave just now about how the lakes look is really a prime example. The lakes, uh, um, you know, a couple decades ago looked a lot different than they do right now. Mm. Um, Lake Michigan, as you said, looks like the Caribbean when you fly over it now. And it didn't used to look like that. It used to be much less clear, um, mm. much less blue. And um, just to the naked eye, it looks beautiful now. You know, maybe it's it's cleaned up or something. But actually, what happened is that we have um, several invasive species, uh, quagga mussels and zebra mussels that have invaded our Great Lakes. And uh, in Lake Michigan in particular, they have uh, cleaned up some of the bottom of the food web uh, to the point where it's harming some of the uh, creatures that are reliant on those um, little critters that are swimming around in, in the lake. And so it's cleared up the water column and created other problems like uh, algal growth, um, where light penetrates uh, deeper down into the water column and ends up instigating um, al algae growing where they weren't before and, and causes changes in ecosystem dynamics. And, and so um, 
invasive species are one where that have had a tremendous impact over the last uh, several decades, uh, and is definitely still of concern within the Great Lakes. Whether it's um, quagga mussels and zebra mussels, or uh, some of the fish species that have been introduced, and um, that uh, brings me to one of the things that the reasons why the Great Lakes are also important is, is shipping. And I didn't mention that before, but we use the Great Lakes as a conveyance system for our uh, goods and, and and things that we're transporting around the Great Lakes region um, from other parts of the world. And with that, they sometimes bring in other critters that are not um, necessarily uh, beneficial uh, for our Great Lakes ecosystem. Yeah. Well, two of the other things I hear often are uh, associated with the Great Lakes are microplastics. You know, I've heard about that being an issue. Is that something that your science is, is looking at or that you're, uh, you know, obviously aware of? Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the things I think we had known that there were, you know, plastics out in ocean systems for a while. The microplastics issue really hit um, with an article that was uh, published here on the Great Lakes where they found these little bits of plastics, um, either things that had broken down or things that had been in our cosmetic products um, in different parts of the lake. And and we're learning more now that... um, uh, especially as there was such an emphasis before on uh, plastics that came out of our cosmetics, the scrubbers, um, little plastic beads that had been put in uh, for exfoliation or for looks um, and uh, people being afraid that those were what was ending up out in the lake. And what we're finding now is that um, there's a diversity of plastics that end up out there, things that are, are polymers, um, including things like uh, shredded up tires, um, fibers from our clothing that end up washing out and into our, our laundry and into the sewage treatment plant, which is not designed to take those things out and end up out in the environment. Um, and so uh, it is an issue. Um, there's still a question as to how much of an impact it's causing on freshwater systems. And so I think that's uh, still one of the big question marks. The fact that we are finding those little plastics often out in freshwater environments is definitely raising that to a level of concern. Hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask about, because I see articles uh, about climate change in the Great Lakes. You know, we, we hear so much about the drought in the West and here on the East Coast, we've got like a lot of intense rainfall and hurricanes and there's flooding that happens in the middle of the country. Um, I'm just curious kind of what the science is, is saying about the Great Lakes and if climate impacts. Yeah, in fact, we have a position open right now for uh, a climate scientist to join our ranks because we know this is important. We've had several scientists that have been studying this for, again, a couple of decades. Um, we, uh, In fact, we just um, absorbed into our school the um, atmospheric sciences department because we know there's such a strong connection between uh, atmospheric science and what happens in our, our Great Lakes systems. Uh, there have definitely been changes in um, water patterns, for instance, in Green Bay, um, which is up to the north of us, uh, we have several scientists that study Green Bay ecosystem, which is part of the Great Lakes. And we know that there have been changes in water movement and in temperature and in the organisms that are able to survive and thrive in the um, in Green Bay because of, of climate change. And we also see changes in um, and, you know, the big thing about climate change is the variability that happens in our weather patterns. And what we have seen in the Milwaukee area and in other places surrounding the Great Lakes is that variability is really influencing how much washes into the lakes, how much uh, water flow um, sewage treatment systems have to deal with, our infrastructure has to deal with. Uh, we see differences in ice cover uh, on the lakes, which also um, helps to determine uh, water levels in the lake. And um, again, it's not necessarily that one year we, we see 
this uh, um, tremendous change and it keeps growing, it's the variability that happens is um, becoming uh, more unpredictable and, and greater and greater cycles so that uh, it's influencing how dynamic that system is and influencing them, you know, the whole ecosystem because of it. Mm, yeah, interesting. You know, I think when you were talking about the School of Freshwater Sciences in the beginning of our conversation, you did rattle off uh, some different areas of research and things you do. Is there, are there any other uh, leading areas of research you have, types of research, or even notable or interesting findings that have come out of your science that you'd want to chat about? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, uh, my lab studies emerging contaminants, and those things are uh, either uh, chemicals that are new to the marketplace or things that have been around for a while, and we just now are able to measure them at maybe the low levels that they're found out in the environment. And so um, some of the things that we've researched in the past are some of the pharmaceuticals that we use on a daily basis and end up going through the sewage treatment plant. Uh, again, it, they get removed to some degree, but they end up out in our environment. And we try to identify which ones do we have to be more concerned about than others? And and um, and so our research has pointed to uh, you know a few different classes of medications that might be having impacts on fish populations. These include some of the neuropharmaceuticals that are released, so things like Prozac and uh, some of the other things that we take for depression, anxiety, um, seizures, and other things have similar neurological functions in in fish. And so, mm. what happens when you're exposed to a really tiny dose of that over a long period of time in fish populations? And that's one of the things that we're studying. Also, uh, diabetes medications. So huge swaths of our, our population across the United States are on uh, diabetes anti-diabetic medications like uh, metformin is one. Um, and we've had some indication that that could potentially affect um, reproduction in fish. And so we're investigating that further. Um, definitely that energy balance, you know, it's designed to uh, regulate insulin levels in mammals, uh, in, in us, uh, but does what does it do in a, in a fish? And it, it, we're um, a little concerned that it might have something... Uh, some kind of impact on the energy budget of, of a fish to the point where it causes changes in their populations. Um, one of the other great areas uh, in our research, I mentioned in the beginning, uh, our scientist Sandra McClellan is looking at how you can monitor uh, sewage and wastewater effluent and uh, the environment after that sewage and wastewater effluent to determine um, what's going on in a population. So uh, she's part of the group of scientists around the United States, around the world, that are looking at wastewater as an indicator for human populations, in this case for COVID. And um, for instance, where is the Omicron uh, variant? Are we finding Finding it here in our um, ecosystem, and that would indicate that it's also in our human population. Maybe before we've even detected it medically in our in our hospitals and in our uh, our clinics. Um, so that's a, just uh, those are just examples of a couple areas of research. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I hadn't heard about diabetic medication before. You know, I've definitely heard pharmaceuticals. I guess that is a type of pharmaceutical, but I hadn't heard diabetic medicine specifically. Very interesting. I've definitely heard for a while about you know. Uh, how this can influence even the gender of fish, right? There's been uh, fish that that change gender or whatever it might be because of the, yeah. this stuff. Um, uh, one of the things I'm interested in also is the idea of of research or science then making an impact. You know, using that that science to then address an environmental problem, a public health problem, you know, whatever it might be. Um, are there any examples, uh, you know, of, of that happening up there with the School of Freshwater Sciences? 
Yeah, for um, an immediate example, I'll I'll give you an example of, again, uh, our scientist, Sandra McClellan, that was doing bacterial studies. Um, Her research has impacted everything from local uh, wastewater treatment to um, identifying which beaches need to be cleaned up. So, for example, um, as just kind of a, I don't know if you would call it a fun example, uh, there was detections of some bacterial contamination in one of the rivers around here that was right next to the stadium for the Milwaukee Brewers. And uh, they were trying to figure out where this uh, came from. And using her science, she was able to trace it back to a piping problem in one of the luxury boxes in the stadium. Um, <laughs> wow. Directly. Uh, informed how they needed to fix that problem. Uh, But her research also has identified, you know, we have beach closures that happen around the United States. Uh, Here in Milwaukee, they were happening quite often on some of the public beaches to the point where people didn't want to necessarily use those um, beaches as a recreational point because they were worried about the contamination from bacteria. And she was able to identify that actually a lot of the bacteria from those uh, beaches were were coming from uh, seagulls and not necessarily from human waste. And uh, in the places where they did find any kind of leaks of of sewage systems, she was able to um, identify those and and they could clean those up or figure out where the pipes were that were causing that. But the the seagulls, uh, Milwaukee came up with an interesting solution where they basically hired uh, dogs to run up and down the beaches to scare the seagulls away (laughs) uh, during certain times of the year where there would be populations of people there. And the the amount of um, uh, E. coli contamination dropped uh, because of that. Um, so that's just that's just one example, um, kind of a, a fun example, a really direct example that we see here in Milwaukee of our research making an impact. Wow. I was good. I was wondering in my head, I'm like, what's the solution for, for getting seagulls to stop visiting and, and doing that and a dog running up and down the beach? Um, I'm glad there's an employment possibility for my Labrador then if, if ever go. we need to put her to work because she would be all over that. Yeah, um, exactly. I'm, I'm uh, shifting gears a little bit. I'm curious about the students um, and you know what what kind of mindset they have right now. What are their interests? What do you you know what are what's driving them? Yeah. Oh, we have a diverse population of students in our in our program. So we have um, uh, in our pro- our professional master's program. I'll just brag on that for a second. We have like a 98 percent placement rate of students mm-hmm. from our program going out in the world and and doing stuff in water science. And they come in. Uh, our first students. I, I remember this population of students in particular, because we had a journalist, uh, we had someone that came from business, uh, someone that came from engineering, it was just a really, uh, and then plus people that are traditionally interested in, you know, environmental science and making a difference in protecting the environment. And so um, it was really uh, striking to me, even just from the beginning that we have a huge uh, diversity in why people come and, and study what they do at the School of Freshwater Sciences. And, and similarly, when um, at the end of the line, people are getting internships and then, and, and then eventually jobs in a huge diversity of places. We have students that have gone into industry. Um, we've got, had students that have gone into government positions and, and students that have gone into nonprofits. So we have uh, students that are working for our local Wisconsin DNR on um, areas of concern cleanup uh, in the Great Lakes. We have folks that have gone off and done toxicology research in uh, Procter & Gamble and um, international flavors and fragrances. Uh, we have uh, folks that have gone off to university positions. Um, uh, you know, they want to be a faculty member like I am at another place and, and teach students uh, in this area. So it's a it's a huge uh, diversity of, of 
students that come in and also who we graduate. I'll also say that there are a couple of them that have gone to work in our local water industries uh, or little startup technology companies. So uh, there's one of our first students is now working for a company that looks at, um, at solutions for uh, monitoring water use in industry and also in particular in people's homes to, with the goal of making people aware of what they're using so then they can decrease uh, their water use in different ways. Um, and there are other startup companies here in Milwaukee that also employ some of our graduates. So, uh, so it's really exciting that, you know, it's a diverse field and also that our students are going into diverse places. We're really feeding um, a lot of different uh, freshwater science interests in positive ways. That's that's very interesting to to hear people drawn students drawn from these different fields come there build up their expertise and then go out to a lot of different fields too. Um, yeah. I think it shows how water runs through so many things uh, yeah. in our society. Uh, my, my last question kind of gets at that a little bit too, and I think I, I got this from looking at your website and the idea that you talk about kind of your role in the global economy and uh, the science that you do and these uh, these fields that you're associated with. Could you talk about about that, um, just the place of, of your university and, and the School of Freshwater Science and this research in, in that big global economy? Yeah. I mean, research in academic institutions is really a major player in the global economy in general, um, and definitely in the locations where they're found. Um, you see that um, these you know, highly educated folks that are graduating from universities end up uh, really feeding into um, industry and uh, government positions in the surrounding area that can elevate um, that area financially. Um, and so in, in one way, uh, the research engine ends up feeding the economy of the local community. Uh, we have spinoffs that uh, come off of our, our research that end up starting local companies or, or are bought by local companies um, or international companies uh, in order to uh, build science. Um, and then more as a more uh, general concept, water is really important for um, all communities, not just as drinking water, but for our our industry, for our um, transportation, for all sorts of reasons. And so um, any way that we can improve our water resources and manage them better will help feed the global economy and will help stabilize the global economy. And so it's really important to consider it in, in many things that we do. And I think one of the reasons that we started our Center for Water Policy is that um, water is not necessarily uh, a major consideration uh, for a lot of industries, for a lot of governments. And and so it's really important to have that not just uh have an emphasis on science, but have an emphasis on how uh, water in general plays a role in society and, and how we need to consider it and a lot of, more of the things that we do um, in general. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Rebecca, I'm glad that I finally caught up with you and, and had the, the School of Freshwater Sciences featured on here. Um, you know, I hope to, to visit one day when, when I'm up in that area and, and see the yeah. campus and what you all do. So, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person someday. All right. Thanks. Well, that was interesting, Chris. Yeah, Getting great, schooled Bob. in freshwater. The Great Lakes are the largest freshwater. And uh, we'll, we'll have uh, some good shows next week. I hope everybody had a good week. And remember the most important to tell everybody is help keep, keep our planet blue. Good night, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.
Talk to you next week. Free FM.